You're listening to the Eltham Baptist Church Podcast. Thanks so much, Marilyn, and thank you so much for your prayer. It really, really is so appreciated. Um, I am so glad that really at the end of the day, this is, this is God's church, um, a local expression of his, his family worldwide, and Christ is the head of his church, and, and that certainly encourages me. But I've also felt very, very encouraged uh, in recent days about all that God is doing, about our future as a church, about some of the ideas uh, that he has given us. We, we mentioned a couple of months ago, and, and I guess in the quietness, you could be forgiven for thinking, what's happening with that? But we mentioned a few months ago at an EBC meeting, uh, the whole idea of potentially a campus uh, somewhere, um, an extension of Eltham Baptist Church, another service, but in another location. And, and we haven't had much to say about that, um, simply because... There hasn't been much to say except to continue to encourage you to pray and, and so forth. We um, have continued to think and dream along that track. And, and to that end, uh, we are having this retreat uh, coming up this next weekend. We're looking forward to that. And so can I, can I just reassure you, as a, as a pastoral team and staff, we are united. We, um, we enjoy Actually, we enjoy one another. We like serving alongside one another. We never take that for granted. Uh, God ultimately is, is Lord of all of the, the movements of his people all around the world, but that we can serve together at this time is, is, a, is a wonderful thing. Uh, we're united as a, as a team, um, and uh, I wouldn't say that if it wasn't true. It just is, so thank you for your prayer. It's a good thing, and I believe that that, that flows um, out to the body of Christ. Um, we have a fantastic church council. Uh, you yourselves have um, elected uh, four new members this, this year, as of this year, to the church council. Any, anyway, we are uh, forming newly, in a sense. We still feel that very much, that we're still uh, the church council coming together as a team, getting to know one another and so forth. And, and so what we do, if, if you're sort of new to EBC, you wouldn't have heard this sort of an announcement previously, but we have a staff retreat around this time um, of the year. Um, yes, it's in the Bahamas. You may have heard that rumor. Uh, no, it's not. Um, Warburton, actually, this year. It's sometimes switched around. I like the beach, but um, the staff told me Warburton is coastal, and I believe them. Um, but it's at Warburton, and, uh, and so the staff uh, get away for three days, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And then on the Friday, uh, the church council come and join us, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So for that Friday night and, and Saturday morning, we, we overlap, and um, many of you have served on church council before, and you know uh, what, a, what a wonderful time um, that, that is uh, all together. And then the staff return on the Saturday so that they're, they're here and, and on board ready to, to lead you. So don't worry. It's not that we'll all be away next week and you'll, you'll come here and feel lonely and that there's no coffee. No, there will be. All of that will just be the same, unless the Lord returns, in which case there won't be coffee. Um, and, uh, and, and so, so yes, when you get here next week, um, all will be well. And, uh, and Tom Kimber 
um, uh, that uh, many of you know. He's spoken here many times. He's going to be bringing you the message next week. Meanwhile, I will be um, with the church council still away next Sunday at Warburton, and we have a very, very special morning of prayer. We call it our time of audacious prayers, where we um, just open up the Word of God, share communion together, and uh, just just allow His Spirit to lead us and guide our our thinking. And then we 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 pray faith-filled prayers for um, for the church and and um, and the people. So. So we're looking very much forward to that. One of the things that God has really put on my heart uh, recently, and it's been confirmed a number of times, but, but I suddenly had a visual of, I think, things he was talking to me about, was the worship night that we had, uh, not, not uh, last week, but the one before, on that Friday night. You know, uh, the, if, if you were able to, to join us here, you would have noticed it was all set up a little bit differently. There was a bit more space in the pews. And by no, you know, no particular forethought, Bron and I found ourselves sitting in just a couple of seats. We had no responsibilities that night. We were just sitting back there in the, in the second row and, and so forth. It was a wonderful night. And, and all those who led, and not, not just the, you know, the guys up on the stage leading us in worship, but, but so many others who kind of made the, the night a possibility, those up in the, in the bio box, those those who had just been running around organizing things. It was a great night. But there was a moment where as I sat back there, I all of a sudden, I all of a sudden thought, we're not sitting in the front row because we need proximity to the stage, because we have responsibilities. We're sitting, we're sitting behind those who are sitting in the front row who are leading all of this. And it was this wonderful moment of of feeling just a little bit of a nudge in my spirit about transitions of leadership and raising up the next generation. And, and if I'm right, I'm, I've got a bit of a hunch that something of developing campus ministries and something about developing emerging leaders and letting, letting them now find their place of ministry is, is right and good. And, and that might be a little bit of what God has, has on his agenda, that, that uh, an additional campus would be an additional opportunity to, to help raise up some of these emerging leaders. You, you saw Ollie leading us, leading us before. You know, there he is on eldership. He served as a, as a youth intern. And there are so, so many wonderful young people in our midst that we are absolutely committed to investing in and, and continuing to help uh, find their place of, of ministry and service in the kingdom. So, so we look forward to the opportunities. As you know, there's no shortage of them you know, around the place. But I personally feel excited not only for what God has in store for us as a church, but in terms of, in terms of just campus ministries and so forth, but, but that emerging generation of leaders as well. It feels very exciting. I trust that you can share in that. Well, I'm uh, going to try. Let, let me see if I can nail this in 30 minutes, eh? Um, so um, let, me, let me pray because that'll need help. Um, and, uh, and then I'm really excited, actually, to, to share with you what, what really could be the title of a book. It sounds a bit like a John Grisham no- novel, doesn't it? Listen, I'll see if I can say it the right way. Actually, I should have Sam say this at the minute because he's got a bit of a throat infection, which gives him that radio voice. It's just authoritative. You just listen to him, and it's authoritative. You got a question? You know, should I buy a new car? Come and ask Sam afterwards. So it will carry authority with it. But uh, but I want to talk to you this morning about. Ready for it? The Gibeonite deception. 
Doesn't that sound like a book or a movie? Doesn't it? The Gibeon. No, I can't. I haven't got the. I need milk. The Gibeonite deception. We're going to talk about that this morning. We'll do it in. We'll do it in just a moment. But Lord Jesus, would you please come now and? Oh, we love you. We we love you being in our midst. Um, it's all about you. It really is. Um, boy. We just can't say it enough. But we long for your glory, just a glimpse. The smallest revelation of who you really are changes the world. And right now we could do with a little revelation. Oh, Lord, your glory is a wonderful thing to see you in all of your splendor and in all of your majesty. We just want to pause and exalt you right now and lift up your name and say, we love you, Lord, King of kings, Lord of lords, the only true God. We love your sovereignty. We love your righteousness. We love that you rule in justice. We love that there is no one fairer than you, no one more pure, no one more noble. Every superlative that we can possibly think of, you capture the essence of it. That's who you are, and you are here. We praise you. Holy Spirit, thank you for being present amongst us. You promised it, we claim it. Two or three are gathered in your name, and here we are, Jesus Christ, in your name. There you will be especially present amongst them. And we thank you for that special sense of your presence by your spirit. So come as we open up your word now and help us to understand things too deep for us to reach without the attention of your spirit. We ask these things in your name. Amen. I think it was with Operation Mobilization that I was in London on this one occasion, and as any, any missionary, I had a very, very tight budget, but I did think it would be lovely to take a souvenir back with me, and as I was crossing, crossing a bridge on one of the only one of three sunny days that you can encounter in the UK, I noticed that some artists had, had some amazing paintings out there, and I saw this fantastic watercolour of of the, the London Bridge and, and the tower in the background. And I stared, I thought, that is so real. That is amazing. And I, I, the artist was, you know, uh, like, a, like a salesman. He was all over it. And, you know, before I knew it, I was, I was bartering with him for a good price. And do you do this? Yet yeah, this is my work and so forth. And, and so after parting with the few pounds that I had in my pocket, I, uh, I wandered away with, with this, and I thought, it's incredible. And the more I looked at it, the perfection of it, the symmetry of it, the, the preciseness of it, the almost photocopy-ish look of it grabbed my attention, and I suddenly realized with increasing conviction that I'd been duped. <laughs> and this actually wasn't. Well, might have been his photocopying, but it wasn't an original, an original piece that, that he himself had um, put together with a watercolour. It was just a washed-out photocopier. And, uh, 
And so I had to come to grips with, with that. I was a few pound lighter in my pocket now, and, and I had this painting which my artist wife definitely was not going to appreciate the way that I had hoped she would. How? You walk away from those moments, don't you, and you think, how did that happen? I was on my guard. I was alert. I really was kind of, you know, I was aware this can happen. You can get pickpocketed. I mean, we know about how treacherous London can be. That's why we came to Australia in the first place, isn't it? That's our history, if you believe it. And, uh, you know, we, we know what can happen. And how, how, how can the people of God be deceived? There's a very, very interesting story in Joshua chapter, chapter 9, the Gibeonite deception. And, and uh, after the success against AI and the renewal of the covenant where, where new fellowship and burnt offerings were offered up to the Lord and, and Israel as a whole had recommitted themselves to the word of God, you would think, would you not, what could possibly go wrong? Here is a people, an entire nation, committed to the Word of God. Well, how good is that? Well, nothing can go wrong now, huh? And then we turn the page. And we read about the Gibeonite deception. And it's an interesting one. All the kings west of the Jordan had heard about the great victory in Ai. But, but interestingly, as they came together to wage war, there was, there was a, a shrewd little group called the people of Gibeon. We read in verse 3, and they resorted to a ruse, and basically their thinking was this. This Israel, apparently, their God seems to be for them, and they're, un they're an unconquerable force. So, here's what we'll do. We will pretend, because we've heard that if you are a people of these lands, these promised lands to the Israelites, that if you have, have uh, belonged to these lands, then you have no hope except to flee. Well, we don't want to flee. We like it here. So let's pretend that we are not a threat to them. Let's pretend that we are a people from a distant land. We're, we're not from these parts. We're no threat to you. In, in fact, we don't even belong to your kingdom. No, no, no. We're way off, way, 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 way over there, way out of trouble. Just happened to be passing through, and boy, are we tired. We've got worn-out sandals, and, and look, our bread is all moldy. We're not threat to you. Just passing through, thinking, oh, why, don't we, why don't we sign a little peace treaty while we're here? That, that's who we are. Well, we read that the Israelites um, kind of made some inquiries. They kind of... They kind of checked out the supplies in verse 14. The Israelites sampled their provisions, but they did not inquire of the Lord. So after having a look at the worn-out sandals and the moldy bread and everything else, and they kind of concluded, these are a people from a distant land. They are no threat to us. They don't come under the rules of, of the promised land. They're not subject to the, to the rule of this kingdom that we are establishing. You know what? They're no harm to us. Why would we be a harm or a threat to them? Let's sign a peace treaty with them and let's be done with it. So they, so they do just that. And then three days after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, we read in verse 16, the Israelites heard that they were actually neighbors living near them. They'd been deceived. 
Oh, no. The Israelites set out on the third day. They came to the cities and basically, what have you done? And the whole assembly grumbled against the leaders. But the leaders answered, well, what do we do? We've given them our oath. So that in a nutshell is, is the deception. How can it, how can it happen? And, and how could a, a people of God committed to his word being susceptible to deception, how could that be possibly relevant today? Well, I guess when it comes to the whole issue of same-sex marriage and homosexuality, this has been a, a troubling time, hasn't it, for God's people? Divisive? Uh, sometimes I wonder whether not so much divisive as it is sifting God's people. On the issue of homosexuality, I guess there have been some who are not clear and others who are kind of saying, well, it is pretty clear, actually, isn't it? And it's very, very easy to hear a throwaway line such as, well, the Bible's not clear about these things. I've heard, I've heard that that might not mean that and so forth. And by and large, though, I guess it is, the Bible is pretty clear. In Genesis 1, for instance, we, we have the creation mandate. And that is where God makes mankind and he designates the male and female complementary. And he, he makes them in his image. And then he gives them with that complementary characteristics of male and female the ability to actually continue to create people in his image. That's the creation mandate. We call that procreation. And, and, and that is just a whole part of, of God's perfect design. We see that fallen over in, say, Genesis 19. I mean, many, many places with many ramifications, murder and all sorts of things creeping, creeping in. But say in Genesis 19 with Sodom and Gomorrah, those two cities epitomized, in a sense, what happens when a people totally turn their, their back on God. And, and, and particularly, not only that, but turn their back on that creation mandate. We have Leviticus chapter 18. We have Leviticus chapter 20. The Levitical injunction saying that these types of behavior, when a man sleeps with another man, that is, that's not right because that's actually antithesis, is it not, of the creation mandate back in Genesis 1. So, so Leviticus is reinforcing Genesis 1 saying, nope. The creation mandate, that's, that's the way that God designed it, and that's the way it's supposed to be. So therefore, unlike all of the other nations in Leviticus, it's, it's kind of reiterated there. You're not, you're not to do that, because that's, that's the opposite of what I've commanded in Genesis 1. We see in Judges another opportunity where Israel can, can show how far they can stray from God's commands the people of city and abomination there where they, they again practice homosexuality. We, we flip through to the New Testament just so we, we're clear that that's not just an Old Testament thing. And, but, but here in the New Testament, we have in, say, of Matthew 19, we have Jesus affirming the creation mandate in Genesis 1. He's saying, yep, that's, that is the created order. That's exactly how my Father, God, wants it. Uh, male and female, complementary. His image bestowed upon them and to, and to be bearers of that image and, and, and so forth. And then in Mark 7, Jesus talks about sexual immorality. And the, 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 that's, he would have spoken in Aramaic, but the Greek word there, chosen, porneia, is the antithesis of sexual morality. What is sexual morality? Well, that goes back to Genesis chapter 1 again. And, and there Jesus is simply saying in Mark 7 that, you know, here's a host of things that, 
you know, the, the people of God should not be known for, but right there, here's, here's one for you, sexual immorality. Now, that is, that is every deviation of sexual morality there is. So just so um, we're not being unfair to just people who are practicing homosexuality, anything that departs from the creation mandate is included in that. And so, and so we see in, in Mark chapter 7, uh, Jesus himself, you know, reaffirming, that this is how the people of God should act, or want them to, want them to act according to the creation mandate, just like Genesis 1, because that's, that's what sexual morality kind of looks like. And then, and then we could pick Romans chapter 1, and that's where, that's where Paul says, you see, one of the things that happens when we lose the knowledge of God is, without the knowledge of God, we, we lose also an understanding of the image of God, and therefore we can't replicate the image of God. And well, that results in these sorts of behaviors. And again, he picks up homosexuality as, as the antithesis of sexual morality, and, and he basically there says, you see, we no longer can bear the image of God. We no longer even know what God looks like because we lost the knowledge of God. And, and then he goes through the book of Romans kind of correcting that and showing us the way back to God. And you could choose 1 Corinthians 6. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul uses this, this very interesting word called asenikoites, and, and it's a Greek word. It's not actually, you won't find it in many other writings. It's very unique. So some have said that, oh, well, that doesn't mean homosexuality. But actually, that's a very, very good translation. Asenikoites, those who have tried to meddle with the meaning, actually is a Greek word. It's a bit of a slang word. It's, it's not a nice word to use. We have a word today which we can use very liberally, the word gay. No problem. You know, in some people, it's... Minds, that's a, that's, a, that's a very honoring word. And so it's, it's, not a, it's not a difficult word to use in today's society. Paul would not have used that word. Asenikoites, it's, it's got the meaning, it's, 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 a bit, um, it's a bit crass, to be quite honest. I don't know if, if I would even repeat uh, you know, the sort of, sort of English translation that we would have today. We know what it means precisely because in the Septuagint, which is a, a, a Greek translation of all of the Old Testament, um, guess what word they used when translating the Levitical injunction in chapter 18 of Leviticus? Uh, two, two words, the construct is asenikoites. And so when Paul uses that word in 1 Corinthians 6, Ha! We know exactly what he's talking about. Reminiscent of Leviticus 18, we all of a sudden realize he's saying, and that's why homosexuality is a good translation of that word, he's saying that a man should not sleep with another, another man. He's, that's what he's exactly picking up on. And then we've got 1, 1 Timothy chapter 1. We've got Jude chapter 1. And we've got Revelation, just to finish off the whole Bible, we've got Revelation chapter 21. Once more, as if right at the end of God's word. And, and by the way, sexual immorality isn't the only sin listed there. But Revelation 21 talking about, you know, as a last caution, right before we get to the very end of Scripture, the very last caution of, you know, if, if we practice these sorts of things, we must not think that we belong to the kingdom of God. Please be warned. Please be warned. Because, because you want to be listening to the word of the revelation. And so, so all the way through scripture, I think if you have ears to hear, scripture is pretty actually clear about the issue of homosexuality. On the issue of same-sex marriage, I guess you can say, okay, let's separate that out. That we get the, you know, many Christians are, okay, I kind of understand that. It's an uncomfortable truth, but there it is. I guess that's what Scripture does say. And on the issue of same-sex marriage, I guess you could say, but, 
But what about the, the whole sense in which, you know, this, this is an imposition on other people? What if people say, you know what, we, we actually don't want to be a part of, like, Christian marriage and that sort of thing. We just want our own version of it. And I guess there is an interesting sense here, and, and here's where we're going to be careful of, of deception, of a little bit like the Gibeonites Gibeonite saying, yeah, but... Remember, we're not from your kingdom. We're not from your belief system. We're not, we're not a part of your kingdom. We're way, 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 way over there. We're not a threat to you. We, we're not asking to be a part of churches and a part of Christianity and a part of you. We're, well, at least many are not. No, 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 no. We're from way, way over there. Listen, what we want to do in, in our quarters, what we want society to accept is actually not really an issue here. It shouldn't be an issue for you. So why would you block that? Why would you do that, that to us? And, it's, and I can understand the heart and the rationale behind that. Listen, where of a different belief system, why is it that you Christians are so opposed to us? We're not a threat to you. And that, that might be what we would call a separatist argument. We're separate from you. This doesn't affect you. It really, it really doesn't. And I guess that's where as Christians we come around and we, 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 we hear that, we listen to that, and we are... Um, I hopefully, uh, great empathy for those who are um, experiencing same-sex marriage and so forth, and yet we are called to keep our thinking caps on and, and be as reasonable as we can in, in these matters and come back with an answer for that, that separatist argument. And I would perhaps answer a little bit this way. Is there something that we can learn from the Gibeonite deception that might not be necessarily in the minds of every advocate for same-sex marriage. I, I do not mean for a moment that advocates of same-sex marriage are deliberately trying to deceive us. No, don't, please don't take that application away. But I do wonder whether there is a deceiver. Scripture actually tells us there is. There is a deceiver, and, and we have to be aware as Christians, and it is, this, it is this very interesting element to our belief system, isn't it? that there are principalities and powers at work that we see not. There is a deception behind things which we have to be shrewd about and we have to understand. And, and there in that other realm of principalities and powers, whilst we do not know everything that is going on in that realm, we nonetheless are called to be a people who are aware of it and are aware of the possibilities and and a couple of possibilities occur to me that with the separatist argument, one part of it is that this is only affecting individuals. And I would say yes, but Scripture is also saying that same-sex marriage is really uh, scratching your elbow for an itch on the knee. It really isn't going to address the deepest needs of your soul. It's not going to do that. 
At a community level, though, because we are so, so good, are we not, in the West, at just thinking about the individual and individualizing everything. Nobody does it better than us in the West. <laughs> but we do have to think about a community and social implications as well. And at a community level, I would say that the impact of same-sex marriage will not be like oil in water. There's the separatist argument. But in my mind, and I believe we see it in Scripture as well, it will be like a dye in water. It will forever colour our society in a different way. You see, behind the institution is an ideal. And one of the difficulties we face, and I said last week, and I've said, I've said online, and I also talked about being a bit misquoted in the Australian, I won't tell you personally how to vote, but it is my job as shepherd to tell us and to guide us how to think. Not what to think, what to think is in the scriptures, but how to think, how to think biblically, how to think about these issues. And behind the institution, I believe, is an ideal, and it's an ideal that I cannot endorse. I don't see my vote so much as an imposition, but as a, as a request for endorsement. And that's where, personally, I struggle. You see, I belong to the kingdom of God, and I actually don't have a vote. My vote belongs to the king. So I need to have the mind of Christ, and I need to think like my king, and I need to say, Lord Jesus Christ, this is your vote, actually, isn't it? It's got my name on it. But I surrendered my name to yours many, many years ago. So please guide me here and, and help me to understand how we need to vote. So I guess really by way of application, I, I, I couldn't have, could I, a more vivid example of how deception can can rock God's people at any given time. I think we're all grappling with these things, and hopefully in that very, very short spiel, I've given you some, some helpful tools to help you know how to think about these things in, in order to cast your vote. But it still leaves us with this, this question, and it's got to be one of the most uncomfortable parts of this story with the Gibeonite deception. How as a people who had just renewed themselves to the, the covenant and renewed themselves to the word of God. We will be a people who are faithful to the word of God. How does that happen? That they could be deceived so quickly. What's going on here? And what does that mean for us? Today, under the new covenant and and so forth. But what does that mean for us today in terms of being a people in a church that hopefully, you know, say we too are a people of the word of God? Um, we use many phrases and more and more they're meaning less and less, aren't they? We sometimes call ourselves evangelicals. Well, that term seems to get watered down, doesn't it? So we say, well, we're conservative evangelicals. And then that term gets a little bit watered down, doesn't it? So we sometimes run out of language, to be quite honest. We simply want to say, oh, I'm a child of God, <laughs> fearful and in awe of who he is, 
believing his word, guided by his spirit, just wanting to be the best son or daughter of the king I can. I don't know. Is that a category? (laughs) I think it kind of describes us. And it's one thing, isn't it, to say we want to be a people of the word. But what about this problem? What, what encouragement can we take away? What about this problem of, of what happens when we're all interpreting it differently? How are we to find a way forward? I believe that a little clue here is, is in verse um, chapter 9, verse uh, 14. The Israelites sampled their provisions but did not inquire of the Lord. Of course, we are delving in the Old Testament here, and we are talking about a people who do not yet have the Spirit of God upon them. We will get to that. But nonetheless, even in the midst of this, the Spirit of God in a more general sense was upon specific leaders, and he was present within the nation, the framework of the nation. So his presence was with them to a certain extent, and therefore the application of that is, is I think, valid. But how easy is it today for us to sample the wisdom of the world to use our empirical senses, if you like, to to test this and to test that and to listen to very compelling arguments, but to fail to actually be still and inquire of the Lord? It was a problem for the nation of Israel, and it can still be a problem for the people of, of God today. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul is talking to the Corinthian believers about this whole matter of understanding spiritual things. And in a moment, I'm going to share it with you, but Bron, can I have my faulty remote? So we've just moved into a new house, and it's got a um, a reverse cycle air conditioning unit up there on the wall. I got my little remote here and and opened it up, and I was kind of keen on some of those colder nights we've been experiencing just lately to, to see if, in addition to the fireplace and what I believe is going to be very expensive floor heating, which I'm not keen about... If I could get this little puppy kind of blowing some, some nice warm breezes in my direction. So, so I start playing with it. And the first disappointment was that, for some reason, the screen, there was no data on it. It looked like there was some small glip or something that was supposed to be happening there. But, but effectively, not, the more buttons I pressed, the on, the off, it just wasn't working properly. The unit, as I pressed on off, seemed to power up and and say, I acknowledge your presence. I mean, if it had a voice, it would have said that. But then I started to give it instructions like, okay, let's move from, let's change mode here from air conditioning to heat. And there were blips, there were noises, bleep, bleep, and then there was nothing, as if I still acknowledge your presence. So I started playing with the fan and seeing if I could get the fan to produce a little bit more air. And the more buttons I pressed, the more I got confused. I started to wonder, have I just 
I don't typed in some foreign program here. Have I put it on a timer? I just could not work it out. But, but this little instrument here was not talking to that instrument up there at all. There was no cooperation between them. And then I discovered that pull that off as batteries. <laughs> That's how they work. <laughs> little batteries just down here. And this was a discovery actually late last night with the help of a, help of a friend. But um, <clears throat> we, got, we got a couple of new batteries in that little unit there and, uh, and then started to go through all of the procedures that I'd went through before. And I tell you what, it's magic. <laughs> this, is, this is a magical device and that is a magical unit and it is now producing magical hot air. It's wonderful. When we talk about spiritual things, here's what's actually happening. God, who is spirit, is talking not to our humanity, but he was talking to our spirit within. There is a sense in which our spirit is kind of like this, this little controller. You know, if, if you were to... Actually, this is a bit of a morbid illustration. It just came to me, but let's run with it anyway. If you were to do an autopsy on me, because I was dead, not because you're just having fun, <laughs> um, and you were to sort of say, all right, and sorry, I, I could visualise this because back in the day I went to a few morgues, but, um, but if you were to go looking for my spirit... You know, but no biology class on planet Earth is going to find it. You could, you could go, all right, Stuart kept saying it's Christ that lives within him, that, that he is a spiritual being right within the innermost part of his innermost part. He is controlled by a spirit, the spirit of Stuart, a spirit which has come alive because of, because of Christ within him. He's often talked about it. Now he's dead. Let's go get the spirit. You see, it is morbid, isn't it? But, but you can look all over, and you're not going to find my spirit. Do you know, it's, it's not a part of my biology. It's not a part of my material being, my physical being. You're not going to find it. In fact, when I'm dead, I'll be a very happy camper. My spirit will have departed the body, and, and that's what being dead is all about. And I'll actually be with Jesus, smiling down at you so you can't find me. But so that's, that's how that picture would look. So how it is, is the spirit of Stuart is present today, and he's, he's kind of controlling this body. The spirit of, of Stuart is within me, willing me to go this way and willing me to go that way, willing me to say this and willing me to say that, willing me to to do all manner of things, the very, very heart, the very center of me, the spirit of me is, is willing me to do all of these things just as a controller might will a unit to produce some hot air. But without batteries, without any empowerment, this device the, cannot control the air conditioning unit at our home. Without the spirit of God, the spirit within each of us, cannot come alive and function properly and control our outer selves. It won't work. It takes the Spirit of God like batteries in a controller. It takes the Spirit of God to be able to bring our spirit alive 
and help us to connect properly and to, and to order our lives in a conformity that is glorifying to Christ Jesus. But without the Spirit of God, it's, it's like one of these without batteries. It's not going to work. Now, that's what Paul is effectively saying here. With that background, that illustration in mind, listen to what he says. He's talking about God's wisdom revealed by the Spirit. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age. Verse 7, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery has been hidden, and that God destined for our glory before time began. Verse 8, None of the rulers of this age understand it. Why not? Because there's no spirit within them. There's no batteries to help control their spirit in order for their life, their their outer life to be controlled. Paul says it this way, verse 10. These are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. His spirit speaking to the spirit of Paul. Verse 11. No one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. So without batteries, without the Spirit of God in our spirit bringing us alive, we cannot know the things of God. It takes the Spirit of God within us, within our spirit, to help us understand the Spirit of God, the things of God. This is what we speak, not in words taught to us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit, no batteries, does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For, Paul finishes off, we now have the mind of Christ. Back to our little problem. How could Israel who had just recommitted themselves to the word of God, how could they fail to see this deception? Why? Because they did not seek God. They tested, they tested natural things, but they did not seek God. They did not allow that moment for God to speak to their spirit and instruct them. And the same is true for us as a people of God and as a, as a church as well. We are reliant, as I shared last week, John 16, verse, verse 13. This is Jesus' promise and Jesus' confidence, by the way, that he can depart this earth, ascend to the Father, and everything's not going to go utterly wrong. <laughs> this is his confidence I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear, but when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. The spirit of truth, the spirit from God, will come and speak to our spirit. Like batteries in a controller, he will bring us alive. And all of a sudden, we will, instead of having a blank display and unable to make sense of life, I'm pressing all the buttons. I'm doing all the things, but life just doesn't make sense. I can't seem to connect in the way that I want to connect and be who I want to be. There is a disconnect somewhere in my life, and I have no solutions for this. That's the problem that the world faces. And the solution is this, I've given you my word, but more than that, like batteries in a controller, I've given you my spirit, and now your display 
should light up and my words will make sense to you. That's the way to do life. By the Spirit, through the Word. Amen. Amen. So we don't be a people controlled by the Spirit of God within us. And we do well, I think, to continue to hear the words that the Israelite nation lamented, and that is, ah, we did not seek the Lord. We must abide in Him. We must remain in constant connection with the Lord God and allow His Spirit to enable our spirit to understand the words of God. For without the Spirit of God, we cannot make sense of the Word of God. But with the Spirit of God, the Word of God is life. Life for you, life for us, life for this nation. Praise God, hey. Praise God. Mm. Wow. Well, that can't be because I did it in under 30 minutes. <laughs> but I was close. You've got to give me that. My confidence and your confidence, I pray, will be this. Parting thought. Jesus is knowing he's going to ascend to the Father. Oh, what hope is there as he looks around at this motley group of disciples? <laughs> I am going, but I am going to send someone to you. The Spirit of God in you and I is the hope for our lives and the hope for our nation. God will do it. God will do it. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, that is an incredible hope. With that, You could speak to your disciples. Even though the crucifixion was still ahead of you, you could speak to your disciples with hope-filled words because you knew the power of your spirit. This was not going to be up to the power of men. This was not going to be up to the, the sheer capacity of these, this motley bunch of disciples, but this would be a work of your spirit. And right now, Heavenly Father, we're crying out for a work of your Spirit. We need your Spirit to speak to our spirit and to speak to the heart of a nation. Heavenly Father, we're feeling a little bit desperate in this regard. We just see the potential and our hearts weep, the potential for so many people to get hurt. Oh. Our hearts cry out for this nation. Heavenly Father, have mercy. Please. Not because we deserve it, but mercy was never about that. It was never meritorious. But just because of who you are, your character, come. Holy Spirit, come to the great self-land of your spirit. Come to this land, the western 
most part of the West. Come, draw a line in the sand and say no further. Come. We ask this in the precious, glorious name of Jesus Christ, our Saviour and our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like to hear more or simply pay us a visit, go to www.elthambaptist.com.au.